Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the August 15th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guests are in financial spaces, then brain places. Our first guest is Doug Ressler, manager and analyst at Yardy Matrix, who will explain how Irvine is such an expensive home ownership proposition, the first year costs considered. Then we're off to the annual tradition of the UCI Mind Leading Edge Science about Alzheimer's disease. UCI Mind's Director of Education, Megan Whitbrecht, is bringing the 34th annual conference in Irvine themed this year, Sex and Gender in Dementia Research and Care. And it will be held Friday, August 25th, 8 in the morning till 3.15 at the Irvine Hilton Orange County Airport Hotel on MacArthur Boulevard. All those details we'll share at the second segment. Or you can also attend virtually on your own screen. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. We're practically number one. Get a lot of blasts from public relations I do from PR firms, but this time it stopped me dead in my tracks to cover how Irvine got to pile the top of the most expensive, nearly, very close to the top, the most expensive home ownership markets is my first guest, Doug Ressler, manager and analyst at Yardy Matrix. Irvine's ranking in the expense of home ownership in the first year is what we'll all be noticing. So prior to his work, Doug's work at Yardy Matrix, he was a senior research officer and analyst at Pierce Iceland and previously an extensive career he had at Motorola. He completed his bachelor's degree in business administration at Penn State and his MBA at the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. He comes to us today from Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm sure crunching more numbers, interpreting them, right, as we speak. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Doug Ressler. Thanks, Claudia. Well, thank you. First, I'm just wanting to know, there's a lot of DIY sorts of real estate sort of monitors, trackers, and all that. But uh, I would like to know if you could talk a little bit about what you bring in, uh, how you weight your findings here, what kind of methods enter into it, and then we're going to break it down with all those costs in the first year that homeowners incur. But is there something special that you can't, uh, you, you can, it, that's not totally proprietary that uh, helps us understand the methods that you're using? Certainly. Our sister division, Point Two Homes, did all the heavy lifting in the study, and what they did, they combined uh, a mosaic of a number of data sources, uh, Yardy Matrix, Point to Homes is our sister division, Yardy Matrix uh, is also a subunit of Yardy Systems, our parent corporation, which is based in Santa Barbara. So um, what we did, when we look at all things real estate, we look at commercial real estate, various divisions, look at different types of assets classes, and one of the things that Point to Homes did uh, in their um, research is they looked at median home prices, uh, they looked at uh, the down payments required, they looked at closing costs, they looked a little bit at homeowners insurance data, and they looked at tax rates. And basically what they came up with is this mosaic of weighted indices uh, that ranked and rated cities across the nation, over 100 cities across the nation in terms of the total cost of uh, first year to own, down payment, closing costs, annual mortgage, annual homeowners insurance, et cetera. And Irvine is only, I. it, it really did surprise me, Doug. Maybe, I, you, you did you know anything about Irvine before the, this latest report was issued? I mean, did Irvine show up on your radar prior to this last analysis? Well, we've known that California has had a lot of stress uh, in terms of uh, buy versus rent, 
Uh, we also know that there's been various legislation that has been passed by various cities and counties in California to be able to help monitor more affordability. The affordability question across the nation really is not uh, just centered in California. It's really across the nation. If you look at uh, various sources, it's anywhere between over the course of the next 10 years, anywhere between 3.5 to 6.4 million uh, units, homes, uh, that are needed. And uh, the lack of supply is just not catching up with that, whether it's build or rent. And so uh, that kind of gap, you know, creates an issue. So, and and it's very interesting that it's you're talking about the number of units, but it's a matter of where there there's been some very interesting enterprises that have been published in the L.A. Times about how new units are added, but it made they're they're skewing toward deluxe, and and you've given me a, a wonderful sort of a a bar graph that shows where the uh, incidence of the you know the the price points and so sort of a bimodal kind of thing and so Irvine's total cost it's very close to the what one used to consider was the top is the most expensive in San Francisco and then nearby San Jose but Irvine's total cost is 387,891 bucks and then uh, the down payment uh and then I the closing costs are seven almost 8,000 and the annual mortgage is around a, a paid out eighty seven thousand four hundred and forty. The annual homeowners insurance at eighteen hundred thirty nine dollars. The annual property taxes in uh, eleven thousand and a few more dollars. So, what's um, I what is and ve- that comes in by the way. That's number four. That's number four, but uh, it's not. This- it's not far from San Francisco though. It's just like about a thousand dollars or so less. It's not that much. Right. Which is yeah, San Francisco is three hundred eighty nine thousand uh, dollars versus uh, Irvine, which is three eighty seven and nine and nine eight ninety one. So, but you're right. Go ahead. That right, right. So we're we're talking the the units that are needed, but the you know affordable units is where this crunch is coming. So I I'm just going to give a a notice for the budding listeners. There is uh, the restricted equity proposition that nearby University Hills Housing has available. It's that's because of the trends that Doug is talking about. It's why the UC Irvine administration and it's it qual- anybody that's employed in the UC system is qualified to enter in this restricted equity housing. But it does buffer nearby listeners. It buffers residents from these much more daunting numbers. So I just wanted to give that nod to local folks. So I wanted to look at, I tried to put as exhaustive a list of all of the drivers for these high prices in the first year. And you'll you'll tell me what I'm missing and uh, what needs the emphasis here, Doug, I'm counting on you, is that I, I'm just wondering the market. Does the market along that we're drawing? We know that uh, the it's the Pacific Rim, and that it was for the most recent Lennar homes. It's five point communities, folks. We know the market is there. It's confirmed when there were kiosks in major urban areas in China that were selling these units. I don't know how much does that market. In the around the Pacific Rim, drive this cost. Well, the markets in general, the three things that we're seeing right now for the U.S. markets is that, uh, especially in single-family residence, is that homeowners are choosing not to sell their homes. Uh, they're holding on because of the fact that they have lower rates. Uh, they won't be able to find a replacement home as quite as easily. And they can't afford higher monthly payments. Those are the three main factors that we see uh, restricting uh, the movement, lack of supply. But again, uh, that drives the the interest rate, which drives the mortgage rate as the Fed continues to try and combat inflation. Okay, well, I'm I'm still going to keep breaking them down here because they're they are contributing to that. And like you said, that the rates it's the rates includes the mortgage rates. It includes the the uh, assessed value rates in in this uh, in the state of California. I'd like to know: Does the 
cash sales, does that also drive up prices? Well, you know, cash sales um, in a limited supply, uh, I don't think, because you just don't have the availability of stock to be able to buy. I mean, uh, it's very limited. So you can offer cash, but if there's it's a metaphor would be if you don't have enough cars, you can offer cash for certain cars. But once you, you know, consume the cars and there's no other cars to consume, then it really doesn't uh, affect the price uh, that significantly. Okay, thank you. And you mentioned the the frequency of the resale. That that's that's a factor. You've already brought that up, and I want to bring up is the. Now, I was wondering about the age of the housing stock. If that is a driver, and when, when the age is closely related to the likelihood that if it's in terms of it's a brand new subdivision, like which is where we're building out in Irvine in the more recently annexed areas, if that age, the newer housing stock is captured in a mellow roost district, that would be another contributor of a major kind, more in Irvine than it would be in like a Bay Area expensive city. Uh, well, the Mellow Roost, for your listeners, it's a California special tax district uh, that sells bonds and levies taxes to find new additional community facilities and services within certain boundaries. So each special tax district is called a community facility district, a CFD. And uh, that infrastructure and services are well-maintained, can increase the property value. You're absolutely right. And they exist in places like Aliso, Viejo, Anaheim, Anaheim Hills, Bria, et cetera, et cetera. There's a number of them. But, yes, they, they do. And they're typically in uh, more secure areas, lower crime rates, and also better school systems. And that – well, let's go stay on the better school systems. So the some of the, the common feature of the San Francisco, San Jose, and Irvine that were highest ranked in California for first-year ownership costs is the presence of universities – and then in that, there's a sort of an agglomeration around the universities of perhaps better performing school districts and the other, all the other things that can agglomerate with that. So did you factor in as a, an important feature the, pre, the presence of universities, including like a UC system? Not in this study particularly, but we have done studies uh, for both uh, single family residential and also rentals. And we've looked at what we call tech hubs, tech hubs in terms of college academics, but also K through 12. So what we find that school systems, whether it's a family renting or a family owning, school systems and security are uh, at the top of the list in terms of how they choose their location. And the third is mobility in terms of commute distance from uh, where they work to where they live. And I often want to when I we talk about the how the school systems perform there is I think there is a dynamic going on with that tech hub demographic that maybe the school public school system may not be of the quality it had been in past years but the tech hub households are sort of a, there's a a, a priority set in that there will the household will perform well as the children are receiving their education. So there are additional resources beyond what's available in the public school system that continue to to make that whole area a desirable area to live. Yeah, one of the things that we're looking at uh, in combination with that is uh, how many, and it's not done yet. It's a future study that we're working okay. on. Okay is the retention uh, in a particular area of graduates of college. In other words, how many folks graduate from college and uh, become employed in the same general area? That's one of the things that we're okay, uh, good. looking at right now. So, and then I would like to, another factor is investor-owned versus resident-occupied. How is that a factor in pricing and costs in the, the home? Well, actually, it's a benefit. Uh, investor-owned homes are a very small percentage, less than 10%. But what we have found, and this really started back in 2018, uh, a lot of real estate investment trusts, REITs, 
looked at a lot of homes that were repossessed by the banks, Rios, uh, and they took those over because they said, well, you know, there's a certain segment of our market uh, that wants to own a home or rent a home, and at the same time they can't afford a home. So a lot of the larger companies, the REITs, saw an advantageous benefit there because they were going after a market segment that they believed they could service because they're familiar with uh, running expenses and maintaining expenses for large assets, like a rental property if you were in a tower or a high-rise their forte or their infrastructure is such that they can reduce price, and they can actually reduce it by as much as 40 points for percentage points to be able to offer a price point to people that want to rent a home uh, who cannot afford to buy a home, and they can r- rent it at a price point because it's being managed by a larger real estate investment trust, per se, uh, that knows how to manage things, and it has the cost structure to be able to do that. So it's not a, it's not a nomen not a bad thing. Uh, it really uh, provides a benefit uh, to folks that are looking to be able to hit a price point or get to a price, uh, whether they're renting or buying, to be able to uh, own or rent a home. Though as that ownership becomes more concentrated with fewer and fewer owners, that to me is... it is a, a pernicious trend I would like to keep my eye on, though. And there, fewer people are dictating what the, the price is. Well, in a market-driven economy, I think what you'll see is that uh, it's very dynamic and it's very fluid. It really is determined by the cost factors, but also at the same pr- point, you'll see competitive, um, you know, creative solutions come into play, like in California especially, uh, ADUs or alternative domestic units are being zoned and propping up uh, for folks to be able to get in at different price points. You see manufactured housing uh, that's occurring. So there's a wide variety of housing that is occurring and in California especially is being promoted. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest in this first segment is Doug Ressler. He's the manager of business intelligence at Yardy Matrix. We're talking about how Irvine's first year of housing ownership ranks right up there with the expensive towns in the, in the Bay Area and, and all, and more than L.A. So I uh, let me get back to the the, the accessory de- uh, development um, units there that it's I, – I just want to – Put out there. I actually, as an urban planner, I we I was involved in data collection about the ADUs in the early 1980s. It was a was this was San Mateo government at the county government was trying to find the potential for that conversion of housing, and and it did. Does it surprise you, Doug Ressler? It takes it's taken so long for that to become. A, a an approach to providing more housing. It's t- and I mean that wasn't even that novel in 1980s, but that's that was an effort then. But this is such a this is more than 30 years later. Well, there's so many moving parts: zoning, permitting, legislation. Okay. Um, you know, homeowners' asset values. There's a lot of factors playing in that really uh, makes it much more complex in terms of lengthening how long it takes to achieve it. And the sort of and as well, sorts of the economies of scale are probably a huge barrier. You're you're converting a portion of one parcel at a time, so it's not like you were saying what an, uh, the RITs are doing in the, their portfolio with many, many more sorts of housing under a, a, a project. Okay, hold on. So I'll just let p- uh, people know we're talking with Doug Ressler, Manager of Business Intelligence at Yardy Matrix. Sorry. We've got you back. Doug, we're live. I hope you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. So there was a real estate emergency. Yeah. So so anyway, the accessory dwelling units are, um, it, it's a, I was just talking about the economy of scale, that that is perhaps probably one of the larger barriers because when I, I'm trying to remember if it's it's the LA Times that is talking that had like a series running about how you I mean from week to week you know what are the 
what are ways to approach it and sort a little kind of a weekly guide. But it's that may be an important barrier, too, that has taken so long for the accessory dwelling units to take on, to, to pick up in more consideration. Well, a lot of it is because of NIMBY, uh, not in my backyard approach. In other words, it's hard to be able to get a consensus in a given area because people relocate there uh, for a particular uh, lifestyle or profile. And some people see that as, um, how do I want to say this? Say it. Uh, a way <laughs> endangering the valuation of their homes because of allowance of ADUs and things like that. No one has the consensus, and trying to attain consensus is difficult and time-consuming. Well, so that's what I mean, though, Doug. It's been so very long since the this approach to affordable housing, additional housing stock has been considered, but that there's been so many years where that could have been the the public sector could be figuring out ways to message what the features are of those ADUs and how people can remain in place with that and sort of with that other household so nearby. I mean, it's it just seems like a lot of lost opportunity to to message the benefits of the ADUs. Well, I think what you'll see, too, is there is no one group that can affect the solution. It really is a cohort of groups. It's, it requires policymakers. It applies to business leaders. It also applies to builders and developers. So it takes uh, a a collaboration of them all to be able to affect it. Thank you. And you were talking about in 2018 when the Real Estate Investment Trust were taking advantage of opportunities and all. But how about then after that, 2020 and beyond, how did the post-pandemic conditions and the trends affect the price of the first year of ownership in places like Irvine? Well, one of the, one of the things that we see, the post-pandemic conditions, you, I mean, let's face it, we're, we know the situation that we're in or your listeners do about rising mortgage rates uh, and high construction costs. Uh, also, the you know, since 2018, a lot of people have left the trades, the construction industry. So uh, finding construction workers and lack of buildable lots is a, is a huge factor. Uh, also, ongoing shortages of distribution, transformers, steel, lumber, things like that, uh, really occurred differently in different areas. One of the biggest uh, shortages that we've uh, seen or tracked is concrete. Concrete is a local. You can't really ship it from uh, Long Beach to Columbus, Ohio. You know, Colum- uh, concrete is a local commodity. And what people use for that local commodity to make concrete, maybe people don't know this, is ash. They got a lot of their ash from the coal-fired generation plants, and they mix that to be able to make concrete. They truck that in. Well, when coal-fired generation plants are on the decline uh, because of EPA standards and things like that, you don't have the ash, you don't get the concrete, and you're looking for concrete to be able to build. So. You know, things like that, small instances of supplies are occurring uh, in the post-pandemic world. Uh, Also, the interest rates, what the Fed continues to do, I think the rate uh, today is about 7.5, maybe 7.7% for a 30-year fixed. Uh, So, you know, if they they raise it again, what's that going to do? It's just going to increase the cost. Also, the share of building... uh, of builders using all types of incentives to lower the cost, uh, that's increasing. I think uh, the use of incentives because of the continuation of interest rates, some are actually buying down interest rates. I think it was about 55% in August versus 52% in July. That's a national number from the construction uh, trades. So I, I think the builders are attempting to do that, but it's, it's because of the various uh, activities that are affecting it. So then I, that, I, that was one of the factors I was going to bring up is the fixed rate versus adjustable rate breaking down um, whether – so if people want to avoid increased interest rates and they commit to the fixed rate, that is going to be another factor of rising prices. Probably, yeah. You know, again, it's how prescient you are in terms of what you think the mm. Fed is going to do and how soon interest rates are going to come down, whether you get an arm or not. Right. So – I'm also interested in the factor of insurance companies 
withdrawing completely from extending new homeowners insurance policies. That must be, I mean, that's a brand new factor that probably hadn't been considered with this data. But do you, in the future, do you see that that's going to be a real concern? Well, this study did not take that into Correct. account. Uh, we just looked at net, the state overall average. But uh, I would think it would be an, an issue, especially for developers who want to go in and uh, put in housing uh, if they can't get the uh, type of insurance uh, coverage that they need. Yeah. Right. Or I'm thinking of, let's say they the developer got the insurance, but then when it's now become, it's turning over to the the first homeowner, I'm thinking of some sort of uh, Santa Clarita Valley or maybe even some of our uh, newer subdivisions in or in Irvine, the city of Irvine, if, if that the withdrawal of those homeowner insurance policies could be a driver right there in, in that first conversion into from the, the builder ownership to the homeowner of that dwelling unit. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. And then... Uh, the cost of living, um, it's sort of, that seems to be that, all right, it's an expensive place to live. We've talked about the ownership in the first year is ranking really high. So that means to, in order to be able to live in this area, you're you're dealing with the higher cost of living. So that would be the driver of the fees that cover the transaction of buying the incoming buyer of a new home. True. I mean, cost of living is all, always uh, a consideration. But one of the things that uh, hopefully the Fed will do as it drives its inflation is, is reduce cost of living uh, on certain goods and services. Uh, right now, the new numbers that are coming out show a deceleration, if you will. I think it was like uh, 4.1, maybe 3.8 percent in terms of consumer price index. So I think what you'll see is a continued deceleration. There's a lag effect from what the Fed does and what you see in the, cons- in the consumer price index and the results. But, you know, going forward, I think that uh, you'll start to see some of that deceleration as these uh, controls kick in. But what, Doug, is the, if that's um, in your purview here, is what portion, though, of the consumer price index is determined by housing costs? If the housing well, costs if, keep going up, that's that the fact that the CPI is going down, it doesn't take enough relief from the the continued the trending upward of, of housing costs. I think what you'll see is the supply again with the lag effect begin to kick in. Right now, we're seeing an unprecedented amount of rental housing stock coming on board this year and in 2024. So uh, once that supply comes in, what you, I think what you'll see, and again, it's a lag effect six to eight months out, you'll begin to see the housing price start to decelerate more significantly than it is now as new supply comes on. And one of the things that's contrarian to the point of view is the fact that as interest rates goes up, the demand goes down, but more new supply comes on board, which is what we're seeing. So the new supply and what it does to prices in a market-based economy is key. Okay, there you have it. Doug, before we close, I don't know if there was some factor, something I missed here that you really want to make sure you leave our listeners with to improve our our financial literacy. You're in the middle of all of that. What do we need to conclude with that I missed? Well, I think you covered it pretty well, Claudia. I think that, if anything, uh, it's a moving target, and I think that one should do their research very carefully to be able to do comparisons in terms of what their priorities are for housing and housing stock. And we certainly have the tools uh, in the Yardi systems uh, to provide that, whether it's point home in terms of buying a home for research or whether you're renting a home uh, in terms of Rent Cafe and what they do on their website. And those are free services that users can go in and look at uh, from an objective and a subjective standpoint that uh, folks can really assess the viabilities of certain markets as they relate to commercial real estate. So your stamp of approval for Rent Cafe, it's, that's, uh, that's exotic to me, but that, that you're giving a stamp of approval there? Right, and point to homes, because what Rent Cafe yes. is a B2C, a, B2, a business to consumer, and basically what it does is it collects information 
to be able to use for consumers free of charge to be able to look at, to be able to look, well, do I want to live in Irvine or do I want to live in Anaheim, you know? And uh, it shows you various listings and prices in the rental market. Point to Home at the same time also has a lot of educational material on their site, like this study as well as others, that give uh, insight to readers to be able to see uh, the housing options that are open to them and considerations that they may have not previously thought about in terms of buying a home. Well, Doug, thank you. This has been so instructive. I really appreciate your your help on this. Thank you for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you, Claudia. It's always a privilege. Okay, thank you. My guest was Doug Ressler, Manager of Business Intelligence at Yardy Matrix. We'll be right back in the second segment with Megan Whitbach, who's going to talk about the Alzheimer's Conference coming up in the next segment. We'll be right back. Our house is the theme we were carrying there. Now we're going to carry a whole different theme. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Megan Whitbrock. Since it's that time of the year where we are treated to the general audience accessible, cutting edge presentation of Alzheimer's Research Show. Well, it's that time of the year. So it's the annual UCI Mind Alzheimer's Conference, their 34th continuing also with the hybrid format so people can go there or they can watch from the privacy of their home screen or office screen. I think being there, though, is the richest moment to interact with people that they get it now. It's like I think it's kind of a community where people have been coming for years. I'll speak for myself, but that's my experience with the others where we're interacting, people are very accessible and very, very, very leading edge with what is are the findings. So Megan Whitbrock is an Associate Director of Education at UCI here to offer the highlights, secret soft blend here of this these topics for the invite experts. And she's responsible for managing the regulatory activities for all studies conducted at UCI Mine. She directs their outreach, recruitment, education programs throughout Orange County. Prior to her many projects and programs at UCI Mind, she was a quality assurance director at Olive Oil Factory, a graduate student researcher at USDA Western Human Nutrition Research Center, senior lab technician at Minor Family Winery. She joins me in studio once again. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Megan Whitrock. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you for so much for coming to join us to bring the theme of the conference. This year is, quote, sex and gender in dementia research and care, end of quote. So I'm interested, is this a research-driven agenda or did attendees beckon this platform? Right. So, of course, it's always research-driven. You know, there's a couple of interesting things here. This is a topic we have not covered before, so it's really, really interesting. We know that women are at an increased risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And I would say more importantly, well, maybe not more importantly, but the landscape of Alzheimer's disease research is changing rapidly. And I would say that is in the last year to two years, right? And so, you know, we're seeing changes in diagnostic tools and treatments. And also, we're trying to better understand this fact that women are at an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. I think what's very cool and probably not well publicized is that since 2017, UCI Mind has partnered with Maria Shriver's Women's Alzheimer's Movement um, through an initiative to fund pilot work focused on sex and Alzheimer's disease. She was the daughter of a mother that was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. That's right. She's Skin a very, in that game. Yeah, she's a very passionate advocate. We're lucky to have her in Alzheimer's disease research and 
caregiving, right? And she also funds a lot of research, and including research at UCI Mind. And one of our speakers this year is a, a WAM-funded researcher. Okay, thank you. And so why then, why are women at increased risk? That's like the most global question I'm going to ask from here on. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not fully understood. We know that women live longer than men. And so they're more likely to reach an age where they would be at greater risk for developing the disease. But that doesn't explain the whole story. Um, There's other factors including genetic differences, the role of sex hormones, lifestyle factors that we think put women at a greater risk. This year's conference will probably discuss all of this. So we'll learn a lot more about what those other factors are. Okay, and there we are. We'll get to talk about each of them, the topics. Well, we'll start with the first is Michelle Milkey. She's a PhD, and she is on the faculty at Wake Forest University. Her topic is, and her title is, Incidence and Prevalence of Alzheimer's Disease and Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias Among Men and Women. So that's where she's, that's the opening talk. Yeah, so she's going to give us really the broad strokes. What are we looking at here? What are those differences in incidence and prevalence? You know, what does it look like across the lifespan in different age groups? And yeah, so she'll be the, she'll be a good introductory speaker because she's going to set the stage for the talks for the rest of the day. Okay, and then the next topic, I'm I'm going to I'm sort of thinking I could alternate between the the panels that are going to be presented and then my earnest questions about the you know those actually there are going to be more general questions. So uh, what I'll do is bring in one more topic and then some of my earnest questions. So the role of genetics in Alzheimer's disease in men and women is the topic for Timothy Homan. He is a PhD. He's a researcher at Vanderbilt University, Tennessee. Right. So Dr. Homan is going to talk about genetics. It's sort of the next step from that broad look is we're going to get real narrow and, and, and look at whether there are genetic differences between men and women in their risk for Alzheimer's disease. So he'll likely look at APOE. He'll likely look at other risk genes. Well, the APOE we've talked about before, but just a quick reminder, of that's the there's four different pairings for APOE. The fourth is the one that researchers zero in on, where is it's not a certainty, but it's the highest incidence of where there will be an onset of Alzheimer's. Right. So it's the strongest risk gene. And so if you carry, humans carry three different alleles. We could either carry a two, a three, or a four. And we actually have two copies. So it could be, you know, two, two, two. Two three or two four. Oh, three, I didn't think of three, two three. copies. Wow. Yeah. So or four four. You're or four four. The pooch has done you in. Right. So if you carry one copy of uh, allele four, uh, it increases your risk. If you carry two copies, it increases your risk even more. So I think you mentioned it. It's really important to know, though, that just because you're you have one or two copies of the E four allele, it doesn't mean you're going to get the disease. It just increases your risk a bit. And there are people that don't have that risk gene that do get the disease. And some people that have two copies of the E4 allele, and they never get the disease. So important to note. Very, very, very important. Well, I guess I want to know uh, that the gender identity, it's it's become more fluid, and I, I actually, there's some backstory. I'm not going to overshare here, but I know that it's not just younger, the younger demographic that has a, a, a gender-fluid identity, but I know, I know from, from geriatric-specific uh, cases where mm-hmm. there was a different kind of identity. So is that going to be taken up in the research? Because it's, it's so fluid that it, it at any age where the, a person's experiencing that. So what they identify with and what that means in terms of the kinds of things they're presenting in the, in the research trials. Yeah, there's absolutely a, have, there's been a cultural shift and, and this is a good thing. I think science is slow to sort of catch up to that shift. And I, I think it's great that 
we're seeing more older adults be able to express their gender the way that they want to. Um, I think and they are. And it, they, it's a thing. It is not a, a Gen Z thing. It's everybody. Right. Right. I think what's important is that as researchers, we're able to capture gender appropriately and study it because we know that gender plays a role in all of this. Okay. So that's one of the earnest questions. Back mm-hmm. to the title. I, I, I don't know if you appreciate me zip zapping, but I, I want to make sure we cover all of these things. So mm-hmm. the sex differences in Alzheimer's disease biomarker progression. So that's where, well, we'll let you speak to that in your best. The sensitive measures of cognition, that is going to be the topic. Wowie, wow, wow, with Sarah Banks at the University of California, San Diego. That's wild. Yeah, we actually have two talks that are looking at progression. The first talk is from Beth Mormino, who is a neuroimaging scientist at Stanford. And she's going to look at whether biomarkers, and these are measures about a person that tell them something about a disease. So for example, blood pressure is a biomarker of cardiovascular health, right? We know that there are certain components of neuroimaging, for example, PET imaging, that are biomarkers for uh, Alzheimer's disease. Amyloid burden, for example, in a PET scan is a biomarker of Alzheimer's disease. And Dr. Mormino studies these things. And so she's going to come tell us about whether there are sex and gender differences with biomarker progression, and then how that relates to the APOE gene that we talked about earlier. And then as you mentioned, Claudia, we're going to have Dr. Sarah Banks come on and she's going to look at Alzheimer's disease progression in terms of cognitive function. And she is a neuropsychologist who looks at these things, who looks at cognitive testing and looks at sensitive measures of cognitive testing to see predictors of Alzheimer's disease, to look at changes in disease progression. And so she's going to come on and, and talk about sex differences between men and women in, in those uh, measures of cognition. So I threw you a curveball yeah. in advance in preparation for this interview. And it's I, I think there's something there. And I don't know if it's going to be, if, if you think that was just too too casual and jaunty of a of a, a thought experiment, but it's a it's a joke, but it's not. It's an operationalized difference between the sexes. Is women are willing to ask for directions, and so there's a whole piece to that that uh, in cognition. And I don't know if that is something that you think would have a bearing on a progression of a a geriatric degenerative disease. Yeah. So in differences between genders. Right. So we know that women and men are different. They're different in typically different. And we're talking broadly, broadly speaking, there, there are differences in cognition. Now, what we often look at is a change from baseline in, yes. in, in cognition. So, so I think Dr. Banks will probably look at sort of baseline differences and also the progression of changes between men and women. And that's about as much as I can say about it because I'm not a neuropsychologist. But yeah, I I think we know that there are differences. Okay, thank you. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Megan Whitbrocht, and she is the Associate Director of Education at UCI. She's talking about the 34th annual UCI Mind Alzheimer's Conference. The theme is Sex and Gender in Dementia Research and Care to be held Friday, August 25th, a wee bit earlier. It's just getting a little earlier every year. So I've got sort of switched switched my cognitive uh, radar on to like anticipating it even earlier next year, the 35th. Anyway, Friday, August 25th, it's 8 a.m. to 3.15 p.m. Every middle minute is going to be having something special. It's at the Irvine Hilton, Orange County Airport. It's on, well, the, uh, I've got the link, um, the hyperlink on t- today's KUCI's talk, and I'll put it in the podcast, but it's there right across the airport there. And it's you could also follow this conference on your screen because it is a hybrid event. So hormone replacement therapy. It's 
it's there is getting there is more coverage on uh, in mainstream media, and so it used to be considered a, a protective kind of pharmaceutical. Not so much. It's a there's so many variables. Is that going to be brought up by any of the panels? Yeah. So you know, it's funny you you mention hormone replacement therapy because it's probably one of the more common questions that we get asked in all of our talks. Um, so it matters. It's it's sort of on the surface, and people care about HRT because people are making decisions, or they're willing to take a cost in some area because of some kind of a lifestyle, mm-hmm. life condition that in the present. That's and and I'm sure because I've talked to Josh grill enough about the very delicate sort of ethical, you know, giving people the autonomy to put the priority on what part of their health. So what do you say when people bring up the hormone replacement there, HRT for short? Yeah. So we have a couple of, of comments. The first is that it's really important that women talk to their doctors because the story on HRT is so complicated. And as it relates to Alzheimer's disease, it's very complicated. We know from epidemiological data that there, there is an association between decreased risk for Alzheimer's disease and hormone replacement therapy around menopause, right? But when this was followed up with a randomized controlled trial, the data didn't hold up. And in fact, it looked as if HRT was not good for risk for dementia. There were a lot of other factors that needed to be taken into account. For example, timing of HRT onset and other things like that. So all I can say is that the story is really complicated. It most likely is going to be addressed at this conference by our like several of our speakers. And And they'll tack on. They're so good at their presenting. They're going to pick up where the other one left off so they're making the most out of everybody's time. That is a feature of this crowd. Yeah, it is. It's fantastic. I learn so much at these conferences that I'm able to take out into the community. And I know all of the, the attendees take away a lot as well. Okay, so you said everybody's going to be bringing that in there. So then there is... The sex differences in spatial navigation during early aging and Alzheimer's disease presented by Elizabeth Schrostil, and she is at, she's right here at UCI. Yeah, so so this is uh, Liz Krastel. Krastel, um, thank Krastel. you. Krastel, and yeah, so she, I've interviewed her a few times, and she looks at spatial navigation, so the way that people move around in the world. Um, her lab is actually right across from the radio station, and I, you know, she uses a lot of techniques. One of the techniques she uses is putting VR goggles on people, and then she uses different tasks to see, to learn how they navigate, and to compare them with different people. So they're ambulating. They're 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 walking mm-hmm. around here. They're not. You're not like other modes. It's just it's just walking. It's walking around, okay. right? And they're not going on a bike. I I kind of like a little small group and put us on a bike, please. <laughs> no, I'm you serious. Talk to her. <laughs> yeah, because that is that is spatial mm-hmm. and vis- and uh, proprioceptive and all that stuff. Right. No, I'm sure there you would have some. You, you should interview Dr. Crassel. She's really interesting. Okay, she's around. Yeah, she okay. is. <laughs> um, but she's going to be at our conference, and she's one of the professors that was funded by the Women's Alzheimer's Movement to study the link between spatial navigation and Alzheimer's disease in women and men. So she's looking at the differences because what we know is that men and women tend to navigate differently. Again, I'm speaking broadly here. This isn't on an individual level, but men and women sometimes in in different ways navigate differently. That tends to go away uh, with age. And so Dr. Krastel is sort of examining these sex changes over time and how it relates to Alzheimer's disease and dementia. So the weird thing to wonder is some differences go away, but some differences will be more pronounced. That's the holy grail of what is being mined in this topic here. I mean, that's, we're going to see that traffic all kinds of ways. Absolutely. Okay. So then Josh Grill is going to finish up with the understanding 
differing perspectives in caregiving. So is this going to be more couples that are talking about that? So there'll be different spouse agendas? Yeah, so we actually have a caregiver speaker. We have two talks around caregiving. The first is from Jason Flat. He's a early career scientist who studies sexual minorities in Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. And so he's really going to break down definitions, uh, the need for data capture, and the challenges associated with caregiving for people in same-sex relationships or people under the um, LGBTQIA plus umbrella. Okay. And then the second talk is actually a fan favorite. So everybody loves the caregiver panel. And this year will be no different, I'm sure. We have, Josh Grill will be moderating this caregiver panel, and he's going to have a husband who's caring for a wife, a wife who's caring for a husband, a son who's caring or did care for a parent, and then he's going to have a same-sex couple uh, or a same-sex spouse who's caring for their partner. Okay, what's the gender of the same spouse? Uh, a female. Two, two, two female. Two, fem- yep. two women. Okay. Well, any last thing to pitch here before we go? We'll make sure that in the podcast summary, people can go to the link to find. But I think you're bringing in a few more segments that I didn't see on the website. So I'm not sure if the website's updated with some of those other panels that you brought up that I don't have in my notes. So any closing before we toss to, to pass forward? This is my favorite day of the year. I love this conference. I learn so much every year. It includes an amazing breakfast and lunch. Uh, Well, that's because you can meet people. Yeah, you get to sit with all of these experts, other people who are interested in the same things. I urge everyone to go. And if you can't go, attend virtually because it will also be a valuable event. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for coming back to talk about the annual UCI Mind Alzheimer's Conference. And I hope then we'll just we'll just sort of get on the calendar for you next year for this. Absolutely. Thank you, Claudia. My guest was Megan Whitrock, and she is bringing the Alzheimer's Conference to 34th annual. Watch the podcast for all the extra details. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Georgia Georgia The whole day through Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia